0: The Honorable, the judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to draw an eye and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. we
1: have be seated?
2: Connell.
1: Good morning, I'm Kevin McArdle on behalf of the federal respondents, and may it please the court. I've reserved five minutes for rebuttal. (laughs) Congress enacted Section 324 of the Fiscal Responsibility Act to expedite completion of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, finding that the project's timely completion and operation is required in the national interest. Two provisions of Section 324 Apply here and operate to deprive the court of jurisdiction over the pending petitions for review on two separate grounds.
3: Let me ask you a preliminary question that's kind of interesting to me. Congress enacted this for well, the mountain ballot pipeline in the interest of international interest. Uh, it's been highlighted by a number of people. It's curious to me. I'm just, what is necessary? Was, was that necessary? To put that language into the act for it to have effect that it's done in the, in the interests of the
1: national interests or whatever security. I don't think it, it was necessary to give the jurisdictional provisions at issue in this case effect, but it was intended, I think it's self evident to make clear that Congress was prioritizing this project over maybe other competing interests that might be embodied on a legal a
3: basis. And I'm thinking of a case like Shelby County, where the Supreme Court looked at a statute that had already been enacted by Congress that dealt with Section 5, which was for the purpose of Vending Registration Discrimination Acts. Congress looked at this act that had already been in place and says, Congress, this thing is set aside or unconstitutional now because you don't have a finding basis to support the continuation of this act and so the question i'm that comes to mind is were there findings or was there any type of action on the part of congress to determine that in fact this pipeline
1: is in the national interest in enacting the language of the statute which makes that finding i don't think congress is approved. no that's a
3: conclusion it is a conclusion to say it's in the national interest the question I have, and I'm just asking, it's just, it was curious. I mean, they ultimately have nothing to do with the facts of the case, but it's curious to me because when I look at cases, I like for things to be consistent. I don't have an interest one way or the other how the case comes out, but when the Supreme Court acts or when this court acts or whatever, the consistency of the law is important. And I'm just wondering, first, was it necessary? Maybe it wasn't. It's nature. They just did it as a matter of public interest to say it or was it something they said that was fundamental and supported by findings of fact because i don't remember there being congressional hearings of course we don't take judicial notice of that like we have so many other things so what do you think just just your thoughts on
1: it i think it's not necessary for the operation of the jurisdictional provisions at issue in this case but congress clearly found it necessary to 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 state that the timely completion of this project is in the national interest and in subsection f that determination applies notwithstanding any other provision of prior law which might reflect com- competing priorities now did congress engage in fact-finding independent fact-finding in
3: words did congress engage in anything to support the fact that it said it that's the only thing but but we can move on from there i'm just i just i'm just curious as to what your thoughts were on that, because it's kind of one of those preliminary things that jumped out at me when you say something is something. And it reminded me of the Shelby County case, uh, in which Congress did say, well, you don't have any facts, uh, to, to do with this. And of course, Congress has yet to find the facts and now bring it back, but I was just curious that but you can move on with your
4: I... It seems to me what is necessary in looking at Supreme Court law is, Rather than just Congress picking a, a winner here, there must have been a new legal standard, um, amended or set by, by this act. Can you, what is that new I, legal standard?
1: Well, frankly, I don't think that's the law. What do you think is the law then? Well, I think the law is Congress acts within the scope of its legislative authority when it changes the law, but not when it dictates outcomes. or functions. Okay. When,
4: well, what? how did it change the law then?
1: It might be useful just to take a quick example. You know, Congress enacted NEPA. Suppose they passed a, a statute tomorrow that said all actions of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers are exempt from NEPA. They could do that. They created NEPA, and now they're carving out an exception. They don't need to create NEPA light that applies to the Corps' actions.
4: No, I understand. I'm – just want to know what, the, and I'm sure you have an answer to this, what is the the change
1: in the law here? Okay. E1, changes applicable jurisdictional law. Before E1, someone seeking to challenge one of the covered approvals issued by one of the specified agencies that's required, that's necessary for the operation, the completion and operation of the project at full capacity, could have brought an action under the Natural Gas Act. Now they can't because Congress changed that applicable jurisdictional law created a carve out, and that leaves it's up to the court to ad, to adjudicate whether that carve out applies, and if
4: so to that was to going to be it. my question What is left for the court to do then to determine whether um this particular language
1: applies to
4: um,
1: certain claims you you would have to find that. The petitions challenge an authorization that's, that was issued by one of the listed agencies, and that that challenged authorization is necessary for the completion and initial operation at full capacity of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Congress didn't dictate the outcome, the application of that standard. It left it up to you, and that's all that Article Three requires.
2: Now they left it up to, to do what? To, to, to do what?
1: What, what judicial function is there left? Well, you have to determine that the statute applies, that E1 applies, and then you, if you lack jurisdiction, you would need to dismiss. Um, just like in any case where you find that jurisdiction. Can is the lacking.
2: Fourth Circuit do that?
1: Oh, no. I Well, yes. The, the Fourth Circuit can apply the statute as you're written. In the Fourth Circuit, right? Yes. So, right.
2: So, can we do that?
1: Yes. You can look at the statute, apply it as written. Note that the fact that the petitions... Well, we can apply it as written. I I said adjudication. That's really not adjudicating. That's just reading. Well, that's not really fair because in Bank Markazi, the Supreme Court made clear, Congress can dictate that a a new legal standard applies in pending cases, even if the facts implicated by the new standard are uncontested. But you had a different standard there, right? Markazi, it was a,
2: a change in terms of effective affirmative defense, in terms of whether or not these assets were available in terms of, the, right? Right, and yeah, here we have-, you don't have. What substantive change do you have in the law other than a license for for Mountain Valley to complete this without any guardrails that were put in place and still in place? You didn't change the federal law. You just gave a license and then told the court, you can't do anything about it. Now, tell me uh, how, how that's the same thing it was.
1: Your Honor, respectfully, that's not what the statute does. Or does it doesn't? Now, the statute carves out from this court's Natural Gas Act jurisdiction, which Congress granted in the first place, a class of actions. That class is the class that challenges any approvals existing at the time the statute was enacted and future approvals that are issued by one of the listed agencies and necessary for the construction and initial operation of the pipeline at full capacity. They changed the jurisdictional standard that they granted. They're entitled to do that. Even Klein says that if Congress just withdraws jurisdiction over a class of cases, that's a perfectly legitimate exercise of legislative power. And that's exactly what happened here. You're, you're highlighting the essence of plaintiff's argument. The application here is undisputed. And yes, I should and test it with you. Sir. Yes, yes. And not. But it, you're highlighting the point that it happens to apply here and it's outcome determinative. But Bank Markazi tells us that that doesn't raise any constitutional problem. Congress can make a change in the law applicable to pending cases, even if it's outcome determinant. That's their whole case. And yes, it's
3: out. The Supreme Court law on this thing is somewhat unclear. I think we all can kind of agree with that. You've got the Klein case, then it goes to a series of other cases, but probably the most important one most people argue is about the Tox case, Tox case, which is really I guess there's no opinion because you really have no real solid opinion
1: on it. But do you think Klein is still good law? It's still good law, but it's subject to the limitations that the the Supreme Court has recently placed on it in in cases like Plout and Bank-Markazi. In Plout, the court said Klein doesn't inhibit Congress from changing applicable law, which is what happened here. And in Bank-Markazi, the court made clear that the problem in Klein was Congress tried to dictate the result of a pending case without changing the applicable standards for presidential pardon, which Congress had no authority to change in the first place because that's the prerogative of the president. We don't have those two problems here. This And remember, Klein also dictated that the cases should be dismissed, which is something that bothered Chief Justice Roberts in his Patrick dissent, let me, too. Let me ask you
3: this on, in terms of the change, the amendment, whether or not it's a positive change. I mean, there's a jurisdictional argument, but it seems to me, would you not agree, that it does seem a bit more compelling to say Congress decided that under this particular underlying act, certain things can't be done. You can't challenge the grant of it. That seems to be a change. Is that the substantive mm-hmm. change that you think is just one of the stronger points you can make here, that Congress did something to amend that act? to cause a different change to happen than, than relying
1: upon the old act and just saying you can't do it? Well, I think C1 changes substantive law, if by substantive law you mean law that pertains to the merits of the petitioner's claims. But, of, of course, no change to jurisdictional law changes substantive law in that sense. And that doesn't, that doesn't render change in jurisdictional law unconstitutional. Because Congress has plenary authority to relate. the problem. Well, the problem I
3: have with a jurisdictional basis alone would be, what would be the limiting principle of that? Would it be that Congress simply with any act can simply, because we are an inferior court here, can just on its own decide no jurisdiction. Therefore, it's a change in the law, a
1: substantive positive change, and we can do it. Well, that's what the Supreme Court. That Board, alone going to be enough? Even even Klein says if Congress withdraws jurisdiction over a class of cases, if that's all Congress had done there, that's fine. Now let's you know, Patrick, all three opinions. But, but and
3: don't don't lose me there because class of cases. We don't have a class of cases here, do we? Yes, we do. And that's we most
1: definitely right. do.
3: So so you you see it as being similar to Klein in the instance that. A class of cases have been
1: withdrawn. It's not similar to a, to Klein, but it falls within what Klein itself would be a permissible exercise of legislative authority because it applies not only to pending cases and not only to authorizations that were existing on the date of enactment, but to future.
3: Where's the limit on it? And if Congress can intervene, can, can intervene in any type of case we have and Take away jurisdiction, and that's the end of it?
1: Yes. If you buy into Chief Justice, Justice's Roberts' dissent. So,
3: let's say, and I'm going to take it, too. I'm just trying to understand where where the limited principle is. We're in a death penalty case, and Supreme Court just, uh, Congress is, we're going to take away uh, jurisdiction of the courts
1: to even deal with that anymore. Can do that? I think it could. It might have other constitutional problems. It might have, you know, uh, equal protection problems or something like that. And the Supreme Court pointed that out in footnote 27 of Bank Markazi, that there could be other constitutional limits. But I don't think it's a separation of powers limit. I see I'm out of time. Um, I'll reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal. Thank you. All right.
5: Really? Good morning and may please the court. I'm Don Verrilli for Mountain Valley Pipeline Intervenor. I've reserved two minutes for rebuttal. Um, I just want to know one thing at the outset that, of course, one of the arguments we've made, and we're content to rest on the briefs on that, is that the question of the constitutionality of the statute is one that's been exclusively reserved for the D.C. Circuit. But the court has asked questions about the substantive constitutional issue, and I'll I'll go right to them. And what I'd like to do is— Because
4: we have to determine our own jurisdiction, and you agree it's always our role to determine our own jurisdiction, right? I agree with that, your Honor, and in doing so w- we have to consider the constitutionality of the statute, don't we? Well,
5: I think technically, what the court would need to consider is the constitutionality of section three twenty four e two which assigns the, the question of resolving constitutionality to the d c circuit so that's the question I think the court would have to answer from our point of view, but getting I think to i agree merits, with you getting to the merits of you know both your honor and but Judge Dr. Wint, Wally,
3: you are saying. This hearing is permissible for a limited purpose.
5: Yes, absolutely.
3: It is not one that is without authority. It is not one in which we don't have jurisdiction to have this hearing. Absolutely right.
5: That's we we certainly agree with
3: that. I've been hearing that all over the place that, you know, mm -hmm, the Fourth Circuit is having a hearing that they shouldn't be having. And I'm wondering what happened to the rule of law (laughs) that the court can decide if it has jurisdiction. That seems so simple and so fundamental as a democratic principle we 100% with you on that. Know, it's, it's something I think that unfortunately is being lost, but in the midst of all this hyperbole that's going on, there needs to be a calmness of understanding that we're just doing our level best to do our job and no more. Yes, and I think you fully we fully understand that. Fully appreciate that, so that I, Your Honor.
4: Yes, particularly I, when Mountain Valley Pipeline made the motion to dismiss that brought us here. Yes, and, and absolutely.
5: We're, we're com-
4: completely in agreement.
5: All right. It's a, a question that uh, both uh, Judge Thacker, Judge Wynne, you've both asked about what's the change in law. My friend from the government has addressed the jurisdictional point. I think there's a more fundamental point, And Judge Wynne, you were getting at it a little bit. I think it actually makes this a straightforward case. The ratification is a substantive change in the law. What this statute does is ratify all existing permits and authorizations. And it's important to understand what ratification means. It's a well which understood... Which Congress can do. Which Congress can do. And, and it which, makes
3: sense. You know, when I first approached this case, I said, man, that sounds extraordinary. They can come in and do this. But they made that first statute. If they want to change the law, I suppose they can do it.
5: And I, exactly right, John. And what ratification means, I think, is critical here. And I, and I think my friends on the other side have, just don't have this right. Ratification does not mean Congress is saying that these uh, permits and authorizations are lawful under existing law. It means something different. What it means is that these authorizations are are directed by Congress to be lawful and enforceable, irrespective of whether they comply with the requirements of pre-existing law. That is what ratification means. That's what the Supreme Court defined ratification in in the Heinzen case, which we have relied on in our briefs. Um, that's exactly what happened in Heinz. And there was a tariff that had been imposed unilaterally by the president that was unconstitutional. Somebody came into the court of claims and said, I want my money back on the tariff. And Congress then intervened, enacted a statute saying, we're ratifying the lawfulness of this tariff, uh, exercising our proper authority. And as a result, that claimant in the court of claims lost his case. And that's what ratification is. That's also how Swain and Hoyt uh, the other Supreme Court decision we've cited defines ratification. And that's what happened here. It's and it's quite unambiguous that that's what happened here.
2: Let's take the argument you just made, you're making now, which I understand it uh in the context of separation of powers. So in your ratification, I think I'm correct that from going forward to the end, meaning full capacity, Mountain Valley can violate any environmental protection that exists in existing law, and it's okay. Am I right? No, I don't think it's exactly that. Well, what would stop them from, you just said they, I thought I misunderstood you. You said we ratify, we're not saying what they're doing is right, we're just saying whatever they're doing is permiss. permitted, that's what you said, did it not? With with respect,
5: Your Honor, I think, Congress would not have ratified unless it thought.
2: Oh, we don't know. We would... don't. Well, we, we can't, we don't know what Congress thought. Well, we, we have to go by what they wrote. Yes, as as Justice I mean, Scalia would tell us often yes, in his opinions. Am I right about You're that? absolutely right. Am man. I right that also it has to mean that Mountain Valley can violate, no, it wouldn't be violation because they are ratified to do anything that normally would require permit and approval or completion of this pipeline. Is that right? They have to get the permit and approval. But they once they've the, got it, the statute it, says it has to be given to them. Yes, that's right. Well, then case. they have that then. And so while my question is used very simple, isn't it true that they could violate any environmental law and it's ratified until they, until they get to full capacity. Is that right or wrong? I think I would phrase it differently. No, no, you I don't have to get to phrase my question. Try to answer. I, I would say, speak- is that true?
5: Congress has made a decision that those laws don't apply.
2: I know That's fair. That. I'm just asking you, is it correct that they could violate any environmental law? Well,
5: until- I guess I, I'm not trying to quibble with, Your Honor, but no, no, it would, no, no, wouldn't no, be a violation. You're saying
4: the law doesn't apply to doesn't- Mountain Valley Pipeline any longer.
2: And I do think. And the result right? is they could do whatever they want to do in terms of what otherwise would be a violation. Is that correct? So I think- Is that correct,
5: yeah. These Mr. Ben- These ben- would no longer be enforceable against them. That's <laughs> correct.
2: And so, but. And then, so then, isn't that a separation of powers problem? Because once you have that situation, the president of the United States, the head of the executive branch could not intervene because they, the president would be in violation of the statute if they said, no, no, wait a minute, that's too far now. We're not going to approve that. Wouldn't the president be in violation of the statute?
5: So I don't think the president would have that authority, given the statute. And I think the key, and I, and I do direct, want to direct... That's to what I'm saying. The president would be... Isn't that a separation of powers? I don't think so, Your Honor. Why not? Say, because Congress determines the authority that federal executive branch agencies have, and Congress can tailor that authority in a way that it thinks is appropriate. And that is what has happened here. But aren't
2: these I agencies think. under the executive? Yes, they are. But well, then isn't the president the head of the executive branch? Yes, of course. Well, then, wouldn't that interfere with separation of powers if you have now had this law that says, no, Mr. President or Madam President, you can't do anything about this, no matter what the violations may be? And that's hypothetical, obviously. But whatever these violations are, Congress has said it's greenlit in our, and you have no stoplight. The
5: role of the Congress is to make the law. The role of the executive is to execute the law that Congress has made. And the law that Congress has made here, and I do think it's very important to look at subsection F of the statute, and with the court's permission, I'm going to read the relevant language because I think it's critical and I think it goes to the questions your Honor is asking me. It says, this section supersedes any other provision of law that is inconsistent with the issuance of any authorization, permit, verification, biological opinion, incidental take statement, or other approval for the Mountain Valley Pipeline, Congress could not have been clearer that it is changing the substantive law. It says it right here that that's what it's doing. Is that a selective
3: jurisdiction stripping? It seems as though it's dealing with the granting of it. What happens if something is denied? Does jurisdiction still lie with this court or the D.C. Circuit?
5: Yes, it would, but Congress has the authority to lie
3: with this court because Uh, that does not cover the, the, the grant of it seems to, to shift it to the DC that, circuit, but if it's denied, does it come here?
5: I, I think it doesn't cover that. I agree with that, Your Honor. But I do think to get to, to, I want to make a point if I could in my remaining time here, because I think it's important to tie this substantive ratification to the jurisdictional provision. Because the, you know, the terms of casting around for what the test is, I think Bank Markazi states the test. And the test is that Congress cannot dictate the result in a pending particular pending case without changing the substantive law. Congress has changed the substantive law in the way that I've discussed. And that's very relevant to the jurisdictional challenge as well, because the test for the jurisdictional challenge, and there really isn't clear lawness, but even taking Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in Patrick as a a statement of the, I guess, most aggressive view of the law, is that Congress can't dictate the result in a particular case by manipulating jurisdiction without changing the law that
4: applies and that, but, and that was my, uh, que- my initial question to your colleague what they, what is the cha- what was the change in the law and I, I think you all have answered that my question now is um who if anyone determines when mountain valley pipeline is operating at quote full capacity
5: you know, your honor, I don't have a, I don't have a, an answer to that question. It's because that's part of the change
4: in it. the law, right? But
5: the, it, it's what's necess- what, what's, uh, what is, uh, protected, you know, what is held to be ratified and, uh, what is protected from judicial review is all permits, authorizations, et cetera, that are necessary for Mountain Valley Pipeline to finish the pipeline instruction and operate at full capacity so i guess there would be a judicial question whether a particular authorization is necessary for uh, the the uh, or whether i mean we have to capacity. determine but,
4: when full capacity is to determine because after full capacity this statute would appear to not well i think what this cover st- any claims that follow full capacity. If there are environmental violations after that, then this statute doesn't cover those. Those can be brought somewhere. I, I say I'm over my time. May I answer you
1: want, the question? Yeah, sir,
5: Thank you. Uh, I, I don't think that's the correct interpretation, Your Honor. I think what it would uh, allow judicial challenge to are things like if the pipeline was going to build an additional spur or something like that, it wasn't covered by the original plans and the original authorizations.
4: Well, I mean, at then- some point in the future, I think this goes a little bit back to Judge Wynn's question, maybe Judge Gregory's, about environmental violations without recourse. Once the pipeline is at full capacity, if there are violations after that, um, that that somebody brings a claim on, is there judicial review, and where?
5: I think it would depend on the claim, because I, if it were an argument that the uh, permit or authorization is being violated because there are these environmental harms, excuse me, I think that's clearly covered by the statute, and there would not be judicial review of that. If there's some other kind of environmental claim that doesn't involve a challenge to the lawfulness of the permit or authorization
4: then I, I guess it wouldn't be covered by the mm-hmm. statute. But, but but this sort of discussion I, I think helps your argument that there are things left for the court to do here. It doesn't completely um, lack judicial review. I think I, I, I do think that's right. And I and I but I and I,
5: and I do agree with the basic point that um, my friend Mr McCartell made that that it is that this is different from Ray Klein and from Pachak in that Congress didn't say to the judiciary, you shall dismiss this case. And that's an important difference. It said, here are the here's the new law. And then it's up to the court to decide whether the permits and authorizations that petitions are challenging are ones that the statute covers and protects. Now, that may be a straightforward inquiry, but it's a judicial inquiry. It's an exercise of the judicial power. And, and I, so I do think in addition to what your honor has identified and that the possibility, for example, that there could be a, 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 application to build a spur or something new and then that would all be subject to judicial review absent any further action by Congress, then your, your honor is quite right that there is law to apply here.
3: One, um, question regarding Klein. The Supreme Court seems to, when you read the subsequent decision, I mean, it really did work hard to try to Distinguish that case, or to, to to weave it in. Do you think that Klein ultimately is was wrongly decided, or that the Supreme Court today would decide it differently? So uh, can,
5: can I answer that? By, by I think this will answer your honor's question. Um, at least I do think the Supreme Court would decide it in, in a much narrower and more careful way uh, than the broad language in Klein. And um, I, I can point. Uh, you don't have to take my word for it. That's what this court said in the Brainerd case, uh, which we cited in our brief 691 f second six 695. It said that uh, the better reading of Klein, I'm quoting now, is quite narrow and, and construes the case as holding only that Congress violates the separation of powers when it presumes to dictate how this court should decide an issue of fact under threat of loss of jurisdiction and purports to bind the court to decide uh, – the case, according with a rule of law, independently unconstitutional on other grounds. And remember, Klein was about the effect of a presidential pardon, and Congress was trying to abrogate the positive effect of a pardon through the jurisdiction stripping, and that was the essence of the problem. And that's what this court's opinion says. And Brainer and, and Brainer, and this court's opinion actually anticipated exactly what um, Justice Ginsburg's opinion for the court in Bank Markazi said about Klein. Said that exact same thing. That is in that narrow circumstance that doesn't have the broad application um, that my friends on the other side are advocating for. Um, and aside from that overreading of Klein, I, I would just uh, point out that they don't have any other authority for the proposition that Congress can't do what it did in this statute. They don't have any case holding a federal statute unconstitutional on the theory that they're advocating here, other than Klein, which, as we've just said, doesn't extend nearly so far.
3: Well when you start out with a case as old as Klein and has been hanging around for a while, it's typically we use that pretty strong stuff, but you're right, the Supreme Court I think has done its best to cabin that case a bit.
5: So Yeah, and there is in Marco Bank Markazi, if I may just make one last point, recognizing you've been very indulgent with my time and I appreciate it. Um, in in Bank Markazi, I think in the like the very next paragraph after the one talking about Klein, it's it talks about the kinds of things Congress can do. And it cites with approval a D.C. Circuit case, National Coalition to Save Our Mall, uh, from the early 2000s. which, And I would commend that case to the court's attention. We've cited it in our briefs. It's very, very similar to this case. There was an effort to build World War II Memorial on the Mall. It required permits from various government agencies. They were tied up in litigation. Congress enacted a statute saying, we're, we're ratifying these authorizations uh, because we want the World War II Memorial built now. The D.C. Circuit held that that was within Congress's authority to do, didn't raise a separation of powers problem. And in Bank Markazi, the Supreme Court cited that with approval as an example of what Congress has the constitutional authority to do.
2: Do you think it's the difference between changing the law and suspending the law?
5: Yes, because I I think what this does is say that these permits and authorizations are valid irrespective of those uh, prior statutes.
2: So you're suspending the law, really, aren't you?
5: With respect to this pipeline, it's saying that, these, that those uh, provisions could previously have been a basis for saying that the permits and authorizations were not uh, valid and enforceable. They no longer can be a basis for saying that these permits and authorizations are valid and enforceable. I think one could understand that as uh, Congress granting an exemption from those or a suspension of those. You know, there are different words you could describe. But I think that the key point is the operative legal effect of those statutes is now that they cannot be invoked to, uh, to block the enforceability of a permit or authorization that is necessary uh, for construction or, or full operation of the pipeline, at, you know, as defined in the
2: statute. Yeah. And well, I'll let you go with this, but when it comes to judicial authority, uh, that, that's something that's very precious to our system. I mean, it goes back to Marlborough Madison judicial review. And when you're talking about stripping our jurisdiction, which you can, obviously you can, but that's why it requires when you do so, you change the law, that substantive law that based on the application of that, not directing any kind of decision, but based on the application of the new law, it changes. You can do that. Or say you can't put it someplace there, but here you're talking about suspending it. And it goes back a little bit, uh, uh, I think Judge Backer, uh, asked the question about the question about capacity and, and when is full capacity, for example. That's totally in the hands of whom to determine that? Who, who determines that it's full capacity? Mountain Valley? The government? Who? Well, the, the way this
5: statute operates, as I understand it, is the statute's directed at something slightly different. It's directed at saying, That the permits and authorizations necessary to allow Mountain Valley Pipeline to complete and get to the point of operating at full capacity are are lawful, uh, irrespective of the other statutes, the statutes, my friends on the other side have invoked, et cetera, and that there's no jurisdiction to review that question.
2: It didn't say they were lawful. It just said they're approved. That's a big distinction here. It says they're approved. didn't say it was lawful. Well, I I, I I I think you say that yourself. We're not, I think, at least uh, Colin said, we, we're not talking about whether or not, in fact, we're saying this is correct in terms of existing law. We're just saying that it's approved. Is that right?
5: Well, I guess I would phrase it a little differently, Your Honor. I would say they're lawful and enforceable, irrespective of the prior law. And that's what the word supersedes means in subsection F of the statute. Where Congress said.
2: I know it's who deceives me. I mean, you're going all around Robin Hood's bond and not answering my question in terms of who, 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 no, who, decides, that- who decides? Who decides when is full capacity? It's
5: an easy question. But I, but I, but I respectfully, I don't think it's a question that.
2: Oh, no, you don't have to think about the question. Just answer. It. So, Your Honor, I, I'm not trying to be evasive. Wait, wait, but but I never can get a direct answer from you. I'm just asking you this: Who decides when there is full capacity? That's simple. So
5: who? Who? I'm, I'm sure that what? the relevant agencies decide the question of full capacity. But the, how do we know the, that from this act? But the but the act isn't directed at that, Your Honor.
2: The it's act- No, no. It is. See, that's the problem. When we talk about our jurisdiction, we don't care about necessarily what the act is. We have to know when we can be judges again and actually adjudicate things. You're saying you can strip it. Fine. Okay. Let's assume that's correct. You have a new substantive law? Let's say that's fine. But when is that over? And we can go back to the old fashioned way that courts judge facts and those kind of things like that about existing law. Who decides when that resumes?
5: That's all I'm asking you. Yes, and I I the best answer I can give you is this. And I I, I believe it is a direct answer to your honor's question. Okay. In a situation in which Mountain Valley Pipeline, hypothetically Comes back to the federal government and says, we want to build additional spurs. We want to, we want to build something beyond
2: like in North the approved
5: lab, plan, or. right? The, something beyond the approved plan of the original pipeline. At that point, this, those, the permits and authorizations necessary to carry out that kind of work would not be necessary for the initial, uh, for the construction and operation and full capacity of the pipeline. So they'd be outside the statute. So that, that's certainly an area in which there would be judicial review, uh, and this statute wouldn't block it. But what this statute does focus on is not the abstract question. That's why I guess your honor and I were getting in a little bit of a, um, a tussle here is that it's not the abstract question of whether there's full capacity or not. It's, is there, is this a challenge to a permit or authorization necessary for completion of construction or operation of full capacity. So the question is about whether the permit or authorization is necessary to achieve those objectives. And that's the scope of what Congress, and that's the scope of where Congress has changed the substantive law. And that's the scope of where Congress has said there's no. And duration. as
2: long as you approve, you meaning, not you, Mountain Valley. But as long as the government approves it, the court can't get involved because it's approval, even if it's beyond what we thought was full capacity, Still, the court has to stand aside until, well, well, the government says, OK, you want to go to another state or do something, another spur, as you mentioned, then if we approve it, then the courts don't have a say so still. So the other way you answer my question, then basically that that metric never the, the goalpost keeps on moving I'm sorry, based on sorry. who wants to kick the ball and how far.
5: Sorry if I was unclear about that, Your Honor. If Mountain Valley Pipeline wants to build a new spur, and they would need to go get permits and authorizations, they those they could be challenged under these prior laws, and courts would have jurisdiction to consider them they're outside the scope of the statute. That's that's this the stat. The question under the statute is whether these permits and authorizations are necessary for completion of construction and initial operation
2: of full capacity. Okay. Last question: Based on then, you say it's in the statute. Where under here does it end? What's the terminus of the, of the of the of the pipeline based on capacity, flow capacity? So, because I, th- I want to make sure, because you said that if they want to do something different, they have to come back. What end this? What what is the terminus? I'm talking about now, just linearly geography. Where's what's the terminus? So the, the FERC has approved a pipeline. It runs
5: from its start to its finish. It has a particular route. All that's been approved. And so any permits or authorizations necessary for completing that approved
2: pipeline just, just there.
5: and, and, and operating in a full initial operation of full capacity are within the scope of the statute. That's how the statute defines, uh, what, what, where the laws change substantively and where jurisdiction no longer exists to review. That, that's the essence of it.
2: All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Ms. Hunter.
0: Thank you, Your Honor. Kim Hunza with the Southern Environmental Law Center for Petition of the Wilderness Society. Um, I'd like to start um, by agreeing with Mr. Verley that we should be focused on the supposed question, jurisdictional question for this court being focused on those approvals um, that are, quote, necessary for construction of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. And that point is exactly why there is nothing left for this court to do, because in Section A of 324, uh, there is reference made to specific FERC dockets which reference which approvals are needed. So the total scope of what approvals are necessary and would therefore fall within this court's, the, the jurisdiction strip is already a settled fact. We know what that is. And so there really isn't anything for the court to do. It's what Justice Ginsburg referred to as a fig leaf. Um, it's not really an adjudicative role. Uh, there's nothing for the court to decide. And it's therefore much more analogous to. Well, one of the things that could be left
4: for federal courts
0: to decide
4: is whether um initial operation at full capacity is now complete and any new claims are beyond the scope of this authority. That's correct, John. And in a separate case, so there then, why isn't that enough because for this statute to withstand constitutional muster based on Supreme Court precedent?
0: Because the question that the court posed in Robertson and Bank McCarthy and the Pacheck case was not, is there anything left for the court to do in future cases, in other people's cases? The question was, in pending litigation before the court, has Congress completely usurped the judiciary's role in that case? And that is exactly what has happened here because, and, and um Mountain Valley even said so in one of their briefs to this court, and I'll quote, I'm sure they didn't mean to. Well, they, they said, I mean, they said uh, the unambiguous text prevents the court from taking any further action in this case other than dismissing it. And they have stated that over and over again, including to briefs to the Supreme Court last night. So that's really different than their position here where they're now um, importing this whole new standard, which, as I've just explained, is not a standard at all. Um I would also like to turn then to this issue of ratification, which I really think uh, is a little bit of a red herring here. There is no doubt that Congress has sort of broad power to ratify past actions. Um, and the Heinz case makes that very clear. The Heinz case, by the way, did not involve an article three issue, did not discuss Klein, did not discuss separation of powers in this context. And that's because Just as it does with regular legislation, Congress has power to pass laws of general applicability, just as it has power to ratify actions in a generally applicable way, as it did in Heinzen, where the ratification was focused on the entirety of all tariffs coming from the Philippines. The problem, just as it is with regular legislation, is if that ratification is employed in this super targeted way, to pick a winner and a loser in a pending case. And it really doesn't matter whether Congress does that via its usual legislative powers or via ratification. What it is doing with that act is swooping in and telling a court exactly how it has to decide a case. And that's what it has done here by ratifying uh, the approvals, which are at issue before this court, because what it's telling this court is You can't decide whether those approvals are legal or not. The the basic rule, uh, that we, we would submit and, and we agree that certainly, uh, the rule from Klein has been sharpened over time, um, by the, the intervening cases. Uh, but
4: it's- Including the, our circuit, we've read Klein rather narrowly, correct? How? uh, how do you respond to opposing counsel's argument about Brainer?
0: Yes, Your Honor. Brainerd um, certainly predated both Bank McCarthy and Hatchek um, and, I believe, Robertson. And if you look at the way that Brainer was decided, it is simply inconsistent with the hypotheticals that uh, Justice Ginsburg poses in Bank McCarthy. Jo- in, in Smith v. Jones, Smith wins. That does not involve a factual finding, as was required in Brainer. It doesn't resolve, involve a constitutional issue. So that test from Brainerd respectfully cannot be the test that has been subsequently articulated by the United States Supreme Court. And we would submit that a better test would be that Congress impermissibly crosses the line, separating the judicial and legislative branches when it passes legislation that does two things. One, targets specific pending litigation, and two, directs the court to reach a particular result under old law without providing any new substantive standard. And there has been no majority of the United States Supreme Court which has upheld a statute like this, that provides absolutely no new substantive standard for the court to apply, and which is really focused on particular pending lawsuits. That just hasn't happened. This would be a case um, of first instance. And opposing counsel says you don't have any
4: case that um, says Congress can't do this.
0: Well, respectfully, Your Honor Klein certainly says that uh, that um Congress can't do this, and and the basic foundational ruling in Klein is upheld in Bank Markazi, is uh, even upheld in Patchek, certainly is upheld in Robertson and Pope and many other cases over the years. The Supreme Court has had plenty of time to declare Klein uh, bad law, but it it hasn't. And I think the reason is is because what the sub- principle is upheld in Patchek. Well, the the principle. There's, there's no majority, right? That that is correct, Your Honor. But certainly, all of the no justices said that Klein was bad law in Patchick. Is is I guess the best that we can take from from that case. Um, But it is worth pointing out that there were four justices in that case that said a unilateral strip of jurisdiction, as we have in this case would not pass constitutional muster because you can't use jurisdiction stripping, as Congress has intended to here, as a means to an end, and that that would essentially just be empty formalism. And empty formalism is exactly what um, my colleagues on the other side want want to have here. They're saying, well, no, Court, we're not saying that you have to pick us as the winner in this case. We're saying that you first have to look if mm-hmm, that we are the winner. Exactly. Exactly, Ana. So it would be analogous to a case in Smith v. Jones. Smith wins if if this court determines Smith is Smith. And by the way, the statute uh, declares Smith's social security number. So there's there's just nothing actual left for the court to do here.
3: matter before us right now. Um, one of the things uh I've not heard the word stay brought up at all in this hearing. And I guess it's because it chose not it chose not to challenge that for this court. Um, and um, Chief has had I me mean, a sheet of paper that I guess everybody knows now the Supreme Court has vacated stay in this case. But that doesn't affect the arguments that we're currently hearing. In this case, as I as I see it, uh, the stay is simply uh, an extraordinary type of relief that just pauses while something is being decided. And from what I understand, unless I'm wrong, we continue where we're going. We have yet to decide that which is before us. Extraordinary matter of holding things in place. Uh, Springfield, and that if and if you prevail, there would be remedies that could be exacted down the road from it. It's just that. For whatever reason, the Supreme Court decided at this point not to do that. Uh, and that was not unexpected. <laughs> I should say. Uh, but it's, uh, but at the same time, uh, when you have relied heavily on the Klein case, there are a number of legal scholars that have gone with that case and, and really worked it through. You heard, uh, uh, the other side argue about it and I've asked about it. Because the consistency of the Supreme Court's law is important to us, and you ought not make law based on any particular party or any particular person or entity. Uh, I uh, I think all of us we follow the rule of law, and sometimes the rule of law does not please people in certain positions. But the rule of law sometimes exact uh, results that are not. I guess one about to, that sometimes they're just not. Uh, politically favored but at the same time it's the rule of law and that's kind of the, the conundrum the court has always put in when you are uh, making decisions that you don't appeal to a constituency you just follow the law you wrote it and we do it and it comes out a particular way but in this instance with the Klein case here that's why I asked repeatedly if you read that case and in a, a strictly uh, a strict manner as what it holds, it does tend to favor you, but then the subsequent cases that have come out for the Supreme Court, and sometimes the Supreme Court doesn't like to overrule itself. It will temper it or color it a little different on it. Uh, I just find it hard not to say that either it's overruled or it has significantly limited, as has been alluded to, as being a very narrow ruling. Do you not agree?
0: I agree. Absolutely, Your Honor. It has narrowed it over time, um, but not to the point where it does not exist, and for good reason, that um, regardless of, you know, comings and goings of different political consequences, the separation of powers is fundamental to our system of government, and so I think that's why there still has to be some line between the judicial and legislative branches we couldn 't have, for example, Congress in its next budget cycle, say every legislator gets to pick a case in the Fourth Circuit where you can just pick a winner and a loser. We know that 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 would not not be okay, and so there there has to be a line, and respectfully. Here, that line has been crossed. We've seen in those other cases, um, sure, where it's been winnowed, but there's always been that substantive standard left. We saw that in Robertson. There was a substantive role for well, the court to Well, Congress reply. can do that if, as long as there is,
4: according to the Supreme Court, as long as there is a, a new legal standard in the statute or an amended legal standard your your argument is there's not a new standard here correct
0: that's right, unlike Bank McCarthy where there was a new standard unlike Robertson where there was a new standard, or Congress could do it without a new le- legal standard if they did it in a much more broad and general way. what they can't do is those two things together that that targeted at particular cases without uh Providing the new standard and that's why this particular statute is so problematic. And I, and I believe you can read consistently with all of the prior Supreme Court case law on point and still certainly, um, de- uh, deny the, the, the respondents motion to dismiss here.
3: You see, one, one of the pain points of this case and one of the things the Supreme Court could help us out on when they issue decisions that are conflated and dance around the issue. They don't help us a whole lot. And and so when a case like this comes up, an issue that's argued by the other side is, can jurisdiction stripping alone be enough? And they argue that quite strongly, and they correct that the plurality in Patoch says that, but it's plurality. It doesn't say that. You only had four justices to agree with that. The other two uh, that uh, that that formed the six there went on the, the immunity side of it so you don't really have a statement that says that alone would be and i question would it could it be uh even uh in in in, in opposition that chief justice roberts was one of the dissenting justices in that case there and that that really came up is that going to be enough just to strip jurisdiction and if it's so what is the limiting principle of doing it and and that's sorta of the the import of why we are here today is to understand from a jurisdictional perspective, which we've all agreed that we are here by proper authority to determine that question of jurisdiction, not getting a whole lot of other stuff, but but that's a key point in this case here. I don't know if we're gonna get a pronouncement from the Supreme Court on it. I I, I think it's one of these cases that uh it'll sort of dance around and leave it for another day, but where this case has started and we cannot be blind to the history of it and why we are actually here. The law is what we're going to stick with, but where does it go and how is it going to show back up in a different context, maybe in a different environment as to no pun intended on the environment thing, but <laughs> as, as to how this would, would, would turn out. I mean, that's the, that's. That's really the grinding part of this case. That's one of it is, is, is what does touch, when will the Supreme Court give us an opinion that lays it out clearly? We wouldn't be here if, if it had been a clearer case on it.
0: Well, and I, I can't answer for Supreme Court, Your Honor, but I will just know that in that case, it's not just that there was this plurality and then Justice Robert's dissent but Justice Sotomayor wrote separately to join uh, with her dissenting colleagues to say that a jurisdiction stripping as a means to an end um, would not be sufficient um to satisfy separation of powers. So what you have in that case on this precise question of the jurisdiction stripping is four on one side and four on the other side and sort of unclear where Justice Ginsburg is on on, on was on that matter. Um, so I will um turn the rest of my time over to my colleague, Ms. Sattini, unless there are further questions. Thank you,
2: Ms. Hudson.
6: Good morning, Judge Gregory. May it please the court counsel. My name is Derek Cheney, and I represent the petitioners in the Endangered Species Act case. Good fences make good neighbors. I think that gets at the heart of this question, right? And Robert Frost teaches us that. Justice Scalia wrote... I
3: understand you've got a good argument on that, but let's back up. you go right into that question I just asked about jurisdiction stripping?
6: I'm happy to, because
3: that's how do we as the fourth circuit decide that issue brought squarely by the other side? The argument very strongly. And they've got four justices on the side, you know, that that, that says it quite clearly. You just don't have that fifth one that makes it a majority opinion and and binds us uh, to it. But it is somewhat persuasive. But And how how do we resolve that question? Supreme Court left it wide open. And now it's now before us as one of the bases. So, I, in other words, it doesn't have to be the basis. What I understand, they argue other other bases too. But should we go in that direction? And if we do, how? What guides us to do that?
6: Well, I think the guidance comes from Klein, and it comes from, from this basic principle, that it, Congress's power to control the courthouse doors in the first instance does not also empower it to throw a party out of court, to reach into the courthouse and throw somebody out because they prefer their opponent. And, and that's what crosses the line. So I would offer that, that Ms. Hunter is correct, that a jurisdiction-stripping provision would be unconstitutional if that's all it were. And, and here's why. Here's why. All of this about the effect and the meaning and well, whether- According to four justices on the Supreme Court now. That- But according to four other justices. It would be right and, and and we're stuck in that rub uh, also and and you know the makeup of the court has changed a bit. I mean, we must be cognizant of that since two thousand and eighteen as well that we now have three different justices, so you know we could start pulling them and you know making alignments, but um that 's much like counting angels on the head of a pen what are the what 's the reasoning behind it what 's the reasoning behind why the jurisdiction strip would be unconstitutional by itself and here 's what that is. Because you couldn't answer the Marquasy question, right? If the jurisdiction stripping alone were enough, it would prevent courts from asking the critical separation powers of question, separation of powers question that Bank Marquasy suggests is at issue. Is there a substantive change of law? If Jurisdiction stripping were enough. If, if Section 324e1 uh, were sufficient to 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 end this case, then the court would never get to address the question of well, what is the effect of 324c? Is there a change of law? And so that's why the the jurisdiction strip itself cannot be enough to end this case. You
3: no, know, sometimes we can predict kind of where the Supreme Court would go, but. That Patacha case is a strange case in terms of the mix of it with what we usually would think about it. I mean, you had Justice Thomas, who joined with Justice Breyer, Justice Alito, and Justice Kagan for that jurisdiction strip. Then you had Ginsburg and, uh, and, uh, who else was with Ginsburg? Oh, and Sotomayor went with the immunity. Then in dissent, you've got Chief Justice Roberts with Kennedy and Gorsuch. On a I mean the case is all over the place, so you can't look at what we would all think about as well the you know we as judges don't like to think in these ideological things of conservative versus liberal we we just don't find that because that's I don't think it's true I think it's I think we follow the rule of law and it falls in certain camps but this is a case if you ever want to see one it's not going to give you a prediction on how the Supreme Court would rule on this case because they're all over the place in terms of their usual division, and then they're all over the place in terms of how it's happened. So when the Supreme Court gives us a case like Patach, what in the world do we, law courts, do with it? That's the question that's coming to us. I mean, now the issue comes to us, and it doesn't help us a lot in terms of which direction to go on. Them. I understand sometimes you just cannot agree, and I, and I understand that, but So what, I mean, you've argued this case, Ilsa's argued that, Klein has put into it. You've got a couple other cases. you got the Mikasa case I heard brought up in the whole bit from the D.C. Circuit and then Springport. But that's the problem when we get a case here and then it's we just have to follow the law. We are what you call an inferior court, but we have to follow the law. We don't follow political whims or people calling us one thing or another. We follow the law. And when the law is like this, what in the heck do you do? <laughs> it's the question. And what do you, how do you, how do you want us to advance on it?
6: I, you know, I, I suppose that's, you know, why there are, are, are guaranteed lifetime t- appointments and salaries. It's the hard work to divine what the yeah. law is, right? I, I, I don't, I, I, I say that kind of facetiously, well, but that's just
3: for judicial independence. And we're pretty independent about that. The lifetime of Congress. the Congress right. knew what they were doing when they did that. That tells us, yeah, we can make a rule. But we like to do things. Sometimes we like to have some notion of how ultimately the spring foot would come on it. And this is a case where there's a lot of back and forth.
6: Absolutely. And and as you observe, Judge, when it doesn't align in some of the common ways that people, you know, conventional wisdom would would align it. And so it it really comes down to looking at what are the guideposts. What do we know? What what can we look to the law and find? And so we start with Klein. And one of the things that is uh, you know. For, and you know you talked about the scholarship of Klein. Some people think what has happened with Klein is it 's become reversed with the 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 Spooner Peggy rule. The Spooner Peggy rule suggests that well, you can change a law and that has to be applicable in an in a pending case. Klein carved out an exception for that when it determines the outcome in a case. But then what happens with Bank Markazi is you see the, you know, the exception then get swallowed back up by Peggy Schooner, or the Schooner Peggy, pardon me, the change of law rule. And so now we're back looking for you can't determine an outcome unless there's a change of law. But how do you even ask the question, if there is there a change in law, if you've been deprived of jurisdiction in the first instance to ask that question? Right? And this, this statute presents that problem. We heard a lot today about the ratification provision in 324C. We heard about the supersession provision in 324F. But if the government and Mr. McCarthy are correct, this court can't even reach those questions about whether 324C changes the law or whether 324F changes the law because This court, no court has jurisdiction to address those questions. Um, uh, if you give the language of 324E1, it's plain meaning. And that is why 324E1, you know, crosses that boundary. It is not a good, it it doesn't, it, it crosses the fence between the judicial power and the legislative power. Once Congress has allowed parties into court. It cannot manipulate jurisdiction. And and I think that's what's so resonating about uh Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in the Patchett case, and, and I, I I pronounce it differently just from the the moots that we've been going through. I, I don't know how to pronounce the name of that case. I know it's different from Judge Wynne. Um, but what he asks in that case is how in the world is it any different for Congress to say in the case in Jones's case against Smith The court has no jurisdiction. From saying, in the case of Smith versus Jones, Smith wins. Either way, Congress has just declared the winner of the case, right? And it becomes empty formalism. And it becomes the situation where a constitutional rule becomes a matter of drafting. It becomes a drafting rule to protect, you know, the independence of the judiciary. If we're looking for magic language, oh, the statute in Klein actually prescribed dismissal. That will, you know, that's, that's the case. But that even- We review statutes all
4: the time based on their drafting to determine what they mean whether they're constitutional not constitutional so that that is part of congress's
6: role well I agree with that to to an extent that the plan, as as Judge Gregory observed and as Justice Scalia has repeatedly reminded us, the evidence of Congress's intent is in the language that it uses. But Congress's intent to declare a victor in a case is equally apparent on a statute that says. This court lacks jurisdiction of any case against involving a Mountain Valley pipeline permit and similarly declares a victor if it were just to write a, write a, a, a statute that said in the case of Appalachian Voices versus U.S. Department of Interior, U.S. Department of Interior wins.
4: In Markazi, didn't the Supreme Court say that Congress is permitted to change the law even when doing so will affect uh, uh, effectively decide a pending case?
6: Yes, and, and, and that's the rub and the and the, the trouble that we have here, right? Because where is this line between a statute that is outcome determinative, which I believe is the language that that Bank Marcose Used. And the prohibition from Klein that I think the scholars and its progeny agree is Congress cannot direct the outcome in, in a pending case. You know, that is a fine hair to split, but nonetheless, that's, that's the, the task that we're left with. And I think if you, when you draw that line as to that jurisdictional provision, the jurisdictional provision falls on the side of directing an outcome because Congress is now using its power to define the, the authority of the legis, of, I'm sorry, of the, the, Judge Wynne's word, not mine. The inferior court um, to, um, to 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 affect the outcome, specifically, intentionally affect the outcome of a case, and it's that kind of transgression that does cross the line. And uh, coming back to to Klein just a bit, um, I, I would offer that an additional reason why this court's previous statements in Brainer et cetera, not only are they inconsistent with the Supreme Court's later statements in Bank Markazi, et cetera, that Ms. Hunter highlighted, I would offer that they're also not binding on this court because those statements in Brainer and Amur were offered in cases that did not involve pending litigation. So they didn't implicate the Klein rule at all. So there was no need for the court to try and divine what the Supreme Court rule and Klein meant, and especially when it's such a, a difficult matter uh, it, it shouldn't be uh you know decided in, um without concrete circumstances so i think that's a good reason to uh to to distinguish brainer or, or or not feel bound by it here because it is in fact um dicta but one of the questions that comes up about klein is and, and it's been raised i think by mr mcardle and others is that really while that case was all about the pardon power of the executive and that it was a, a crossing of the the, the exercise of the legislative branch of executive power, not the judicial power. But, and I don't think, as Mr. Verilli, uh, um argued, that Bank Markazi uh, says that. And and if it does, it's inconsistent with Klein in itself. If you go back and look at Klein, it offers two separate holdings. First, it addresses the transgression of the judicial branch. And it offers uh the rule that we're all, you know, that we are discussing here today. And then it says, And it's also problematic for this reason, because it tries to redefine the effect of a pardon, which Congress cannot do. It's that also language. And that's why in the Sioux Nation case, the Supreme Court recognized there were two constitutional infirmities in the statute at issue in Klein. Chief Justice Roberts recognized that as well. So I I don't think it's a safe place to retreat to say, well, it's only, uh, you know, Congress only violates the Klein rule if it tries to do something that's otherwise unconstitutional. That's not supported by the original language in Klein, nor is it supported by you know, um the, the way, different
3: that, you know, when you look at client the cases, and again we have to follow client as a case, the Supreme Court comes up with a rule and says, Okay, if it's a pardon, uh, then, you know, because we're dealing with the statutes, con- Reconstruction Statute comes up and says, you know, if you've been fighting against the United States, you can't get your property back. And Congress says, Well, if you got a Supreme Court says you got a pardon, then uh you you can get compensation. Congress comes back and says, No, if you got a pardon that pardon itself tells you did something. Therefore, you don't get comp- compensation. Supreme Court comes back and validates itself, and said yes, you can, and you've overstepped. Basically, you can't overrule us to some extent. It's different from the other cases. Uh, the other cases, when you look in at you know the actual acts, and even this one somewhat different. I mean, this is the Financial Responsibility Act. It's not even named, you know, the MVP Act or anything of that nature. I mean, when you had the potashi case. You were dealing with a particular act, the Gun Lake Act, so to speak. It was a specific act that was for that. So when you're dealing with, you know, of course Congress can do that. It can bury, looks like to me, anything in the middle of, a, of an act that didn't have anything to do with the act except tangentially and then get it passed. I'm not questioning that at all. And, and of course that was what was done here. But when you're looking back at, uh, Klein and, and the basis upon what it was there and no one has gone there to say it should be overruled, but I, looks out like to me, there's a lot of it that's just not there anymore. And the basis of it doesn't seem to be favored. And yet you argue it as though it is the law of the land. But I guess it is because it's still on the books. But there's another instance. Supreme Court ought to just clean that up. I mean, it just seems to me, why not clean it up? I mean, Supreme Court doesn't have a problem going back and reversing old cases if something is wrong and clean up the law. It makes the so-called inferior courts job a little easier and so when you come we are not subject to the kind of criticism that by the way the kind of criticism we've been loving here well, something that won't come up has come up but it has to be said it's been a security concern u.s marshals and others have been called up on us and stuff for those kind of comments that have been made on this so-called inferior court doing this job and no one seems to care about that until you do, what if I, I allude to something I said in another case, what are you going to wait? You're going to wait until there's one free attack on a judge or one murder of a judge before you stop those kind of comments on courts like this. So, But when we're dealing with the Klein case here, that's the case that just bothers me. If you read that case for what it is, there's a lot truly that does favor you, but you've got to put it in context of what the Supreme Court has alluded to in cases on up to its plurality opinion in the Touch case. And that's the conundrum we're in today and what we are here for today, of which we all agree we can be here to decide that kind of thing. In you know, other words, jurisdiction stuff, just for that limited purpose. Hmm.
6: It, I see that amount of time, if I may briefly respond. the I, I think the nub of it is it, to the decline may have been reeled in by Bank Markazi and Patrick suggests suggest that there may be, you know, it, it is fracturing at least some of the current justices, but it remains the law of the land, and it has not, as Ms. Hunter uh, uh said, hmm? Patrick, law of the land. no, I'm sorry, Klein remains the law of the land. Yeah, my, my antecedent was unclear there. I apologize, Judge Wynn. No, Klein remains the law of the land. It was, you know, Bank Markazi affirmed that it exists. And every, I think, justice agreed there that the Congress does not have the authority to say in the case of Smith versus Jones, Smith wins. And the question is, where is the the line uh for when, you know, that kind of clearly unconstitutional statute is enacted, and um, something that is constitutional, and, and our position is this one falls on the wrong side of the line, that it is not the type of high wall that Plout versus Spendthrift Farm requires because low walls are judicially indefensible in the heat of an interbranch conflict which this statute has brought upon us. And with that, um, we would respectfully request that the court deny the pending motions to dismiss. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll just try to make a few points.
1: First, Mr. Cheney suggested that one of the key reasons that E1 is unconstitutional is that it prevents the court from addressing the meaning of C1. That's incorrect because C1 moots petitioner statute-based claims. So the court could dispose of this case, grant the motions to dismiss exclusively on C1 without even reaching him. So that argument goes nowhere.
3: Admittedly, this statute wasn't written in a vacuum. I mean, it was that's the one brief that put that, that statute together. They looked at case law and, 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 and crafted this together. The one question I did ask is why did it limit just to grant and not deny?
1: Well, the, the C1 ratified the prior approvals that had already been granted. So, I mean. So what
3: in denial, if an agency denies something, do we still have jurisdiction over that?
1: If in the future the yeah, I think you would still have jurisdiction over a challenge to the denial.
3: So D.C. Circuit gets it if you grant it. We get it if you deny it.
1: If there's a challenge to the granting of approval that meets the criteria, it would need to go to the I, I, it, No court would have jurisdiction. There would be a, you could challenge the statute itself in the D.C. Circuit. I the D. C. see. Now Judge Wynne also expressed consternation. I would say that there, there's no clear standard of what. What the court is supposed to apply but all of the judges justices and patrick agreed on one thing for for an act of the legislature legislature to be permissible it has to change the law now justice roberts tried to explain what that meant on his view in his view and he gave two to indicia he said something permissibly changes the law if it applies quote some measure of generality or Preserves an adjudicative role for the courts. We've had a lively debate about whether E1 satisfies the first criterion, but let's turn to the second.
3: Justice Roberts said that Gun Lake manipulated a jurisdictional rule to direct the outcome in a single pending case.
1: Yes, that is
3: kind of counter to what's going on here. I'm not sure he's 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 in in bed with this with with, with, with where we are. Well, his but, co- but you got six other justices that are.
1: Well his concern stated on page one, virtually every page of his dissent, was that the statute there applied had the potential application of one, applied only to one pending case and and expressly dictated the outcome of that case. Neither of those two central criteria applies here. So and on that
4: the statute s- of limitations had run in that
1: case, correct? Right. That's why the, the range of potential applications was limited to one. That was a center central to his whole analysis, and that doesn't apply here. Um and even under his test, even if you were to adopt his test about what a change in the law means, which is as far as any of the justices has been willing to go, this one satisfies it. Let's put put aside for a minute whether E1 has some measure of generality. It preserves an adjudicative role for the courts. This gets to your line of questions, Judge uh, Backer. Um, it's up to the court and the, appro- the appropriate court to determine whether – a challenged authorization meets the criteria and the statute whether it's necessary for the construction and initial operation at full capacity now the court never has jurisdiction in the abstract to say well are we at, is the project at full capacity now but the appropriate court would have jurisdiction to determine whether an approval is is meets those criteria and that preserves an adjudicative function in fact if you said in the statute that, that a court can determine whether
2: the approval was appropriate, Well, it says that if the approval, it says if it's beyond the authority, right? If a denial, if there was denial, they could. But other than that, the D.C. Circuit would only determine whether or not it's Constitution.
1: That's true. But in exercising its jurisdiction to determine its jurisdiction, the court would have to assess whether the petition challenges an approval that meets the statutory criteria. For the exemption from the Natural Gas Act jurisdiction, so that would be that's left to the judiciary. And in fact, we have a bona fide dispute already over the scope of the statute, in the the Bohan and the Bold Alliance cases that are cited in the briefing. Two pending D.C. Circuit cases where the court asks, in one of them, for supplemental briefs on the applicability of 324 uh, by August 7th. And I guess there'll there'll be a debate on whether it applies, and it'll be up to the court to resolve the petitioners here and there. Supreme Court replies, say, Well, oh, that case, those cases really don't implicate three twenty-four. Well, that just proves that there's something for the court to adjudicate, whether they do or don't. And that's all that's required to pass constitutional muster, even under Justice Roberts' test. So E1 passes that test. Um and I just want to briefly address if I could, I see my time's almost up. Is it okay if I um your concern, Your Honor? You say the project is exempted from all environmental laws that's not true the statute ratifies existing approvals not with, and those approvals were issued pursuant to federal law so mvp would still need to comply with the terms of those approvals and that's a, that's a big difference you know, the, all, the approvals carry them all the way through full capacity whatever they need to do that it's approved Right, but what's a, what's approved are the federal approvals issued pursuant to federal law. There's no blanket statement in the
2: act that he says suspended the law as to them. Remember, that's the whole point of the statute. It says, listen, we don't, we're not saying what you're doing or have done is lawful. We're just saying it's approved, and that's what this does.
1: It says it's approved through full capacity. Period. It, it doesn't say the project's approved it says it says building the pipeline to the point of well, that that is the project isn't it that it is the objective it says agency approvals issued pursuant to federal law are ratified and approved
2: that's right and you said the agency must do so it directs the executive to say agency
1: you will give those approvals it set a deadline for certain outstanding approvals yes but it didn't say it didn't exempt the project itself from all environmental laws that's that's the only going point. forward so after
4: let me see if I understand what you're saying after uh initial construction to full capacity, which is approved um based on this statute, going forward once that is complete, if there are environmental violations, if something explodes or Or there's uh, some sort of environmental leak. This statute does not preclude, um, lawsuits about that going forward, does it?
1: No, it doesn't. On its face, it withdraws federal court jurisdiction only over approvals issued by certain agencies that are necessary and meet the statutory criteria. That's it. And it's up to the appropriate court to determine whether an appropriate, whether an approval meets those criteria or not. Thank you. Uh, for, say,
2: say it again. It says up to, and, and so you include the Fourth Circuit?
1: Well, that would depend on the applicability of E2, because E2 also speaks to. Um, I thought you
2: said we don't need to get to that. You said we could just do this, right? We could just decide this at C1. Right? Yes,
1: yeah, so you could decide right. that this right? dispute is saying. moot, which the plan- the petitioners don't dispute that the statute C1 as written mm-hmm. moots their statute-based claims because it supersedes the statutory provisions on which those claims are based. So you don't need to address the constitutionality of E1. If there are no further questions, uh, the motion to dismiss should be granted.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Ms. McConnell.
5: Thank you, Your Honors. I have four points, um, and then I'll try to be succinct. First, there's been a lot of discussion about what Bank Markazi says about Klein. I think it might help if I just read it, because I think it will clear it all up. This is at page 228 of 578 U.S. It says, this is the 7-2 majority of the Supreme Court in Bank Markazi. says, the statute incline infringed the judicial power, not because it left too little for the courts to do, not because of that, but because it attempted to direct the result without altering the legal standard governing the effect of a pardon the standard Congress was powerless to prescribe. It's more or less exactly what this court said decades earlier in that, in the Brainerd case. It's the exact same thing. It's right there. It's in black and white. It's clear. 7-2 majority in the Supreme Court. I, I want to go to ratification next because I think it's, it's really critical. I don't think my friends on the other side have disputed that the, the ratification in this statute is a substantive change in the law. What they have said is that it's an impermissible substantive change in the law because It was not a law of general application, it was targeted here. But Bank Markazi addresses that exact point as well, that exact same issue was raised in Bank Markazi. And if I could, I just would like to walk the court quickly through what Bank Markazi says about that. It says, we have found that kind of argument suspect, that Congress, uh, even laws that impose a duty or liability on a single individual or firm are not on that account invalid. This court and lower courts have upheld as a valid exercise of Congress's legislative power diverse laws that govern one or a very small number of specific subjects. And one of the cases it cites as proof of that proposition is the case I mentioned earlier, the Coalition to Save Our Mall case from the D.C. Circuit, which I would commend again to your honor's attention. If your honor's read it, you'll see it's exactly like this statute, exactly like the statute and it was approved by the Supreme Court in Bank and this gets And, and I, I focus on this because I think it may help with the question that uh, you asked Judge Wynn about if you're looking at jurisdiction stripping, pure jurisdiction stripping apart from a substantive change in law, what's the limiting principle? I respectfully submit that the court doesn't need to get there here in this case, because there was a valid substantive change in the law as a result of ratification. And therefore, by definition, this cannot be a case in which Congress manipulated the judicial rule, the, the jurisdictional rules, to dictate an outcome without changing substantive law. By definition, it can't be that because they change the substantive law. So that stark question, which we we agree, uh, you know, that, that, that there's room for debate about that, not posed here. And then finally, just one more point, uh, following up on our our colloquy, uh, Judge Gregory, which I was unclear about, and my friend from the United States has picked up on it, but. I just want to make sure it's crystal clear those permits and authorizations that have been approved they themselves contain all kinds of conditions including environmental conditions that we have to and we have to abide by the conditions and the permits and the agencies can enforce those conditions against us if we don't abide by them so it's not a free pass by any means
3: fact, i just want to chief i'm sorry Judge Gregory, you've been chief for so long, and this is your first sitting, not being chief, but Judge Gregory, uh, if you will. Sure. I, I just want to make one comment. Uh, we've been living with this case for a long time, all of us. What I appreciate by the council in this case, I've been an appellate judge for 33 years, coming up soon. Believe it or not, I started pretty young in life. Thank you. Uh, but... You have conducted yourselves with great dignity in this court on both sides. Your arguments have been succinct. This is a very difficult area of the law. I mean, we we weren't environmental lawyers when we became judges up here, but you educated us through the process. and I mean, on all sorts of stuff, not just agency law, but creatures I'd never heard of in my life, a candid daughter, a a Roanoke long perch, a a northern long-eared bat, and a Virginia sparrow. What the heck is that? And yet they are creatures within that, that uh, at least for the plaintiff's side, they have taken a great interest in and you've defended it. Uh, I think I, I commend you because there's so much been going on outside of this courtroom, but you have not brought it in this courtroom, even today. The way in which you've argued your case, you stuck with the law, you argued the facts and you argued the, the, the principles that are before us, but not once did you deviate to, 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 to uh, challenge the integrity of this court uh, or even to try to stem the public's confidence in this judiciary. And I think that's important that we all should work in U.S officers of the court. I just commend both of you, I, all, both sides I want to say it because if we grant the motion, this is probably the last time we're going to see it. And, and people think, well, that's a terrible thing. This Fourth Circuit won't get it. Well you know we judges are human too and this is a lot of work. It really is a tremendous, and the lawyers know this on both sides. It is a tremendous amount of work to work through the legal morass of the issues here. And we've been doing it for a very long time, but I, I really appreciate having great lawyers who answer questions and do so with dignity and uphold our judiciary. My hat's off to both of you, and we don't know where we'll go from here, but thank you for the way in which you've been in the Fourth Circuit.
2: All right. thank you, Council. i ask the clerk to adjourn the court. Cindy Dye.
0: Honorable court stands adjourned. Cindy die. God
4: save the United States and this honorable court.